We are so excited to be together here this morning, so thanks for joining us. Engaged and waiting. It's an interesting process. Now, uh, maybe you're thinking of, and it's not entirely meant in this way, do you remember your engagement? Do you remember that process? Now, some of us, it was like a year or even longer for some of us, right? A long engagement, and, and, and we're waiting on what will come, right? On that ceremony, on that day, on that opportunity. And how much fun is waiting, right? It's not a ton of fun. Very few of us enjoy the process of waiting. And yet today we'll talk about exactly that. What does it look like to wait upon God's timing? And yet not to choose an idle posture, posture, but instead to engage. So last week we started a series on the character of David, uh, and and each week we're pairing the story from the life of David uh, with the psalm. Uh, today Sarah had chosen a number of psalms that fit with uh, what we'll be talking about. Last week we identified, we talked a little bit about the history, the background, what's been happening in the story that we find in 1 Samuel. Um, the first half of the book is dedicated to a man named Saul, the first king in Israel. Uh, Saul did an okay job uh, as the inaugural king of the nation of Israel, and yet uh, God had warned the people, this isn't my plan for you, I'm your king, Uh, if you choose a king, it will not go well. And in the life of Saul, uh, some years in, uh, he turned his back on, on God's commandments and the laws. God withdrew his favor from him. And last week we looked as uh, a man named Samuel goes out to a remote region there in Israel, um, and he uh, finds a shepherd boy, and he says, you're going to be our new king, right? How unlikely this man, David, who's chosen and will be king. And uh, as we continue today in 1 Samuel 16, uh, beginning in verse 14, uh, we will find David in now a season of waiting. What you won't see directly in the text, or at least in the parts that we read, is that for the next 15 years, he will be inaugurated as the new king of Israel, yet not yet the king. In fact, serving under Saul who is currently the king. Talk about waiting. Fifteen years. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, we begin. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Uh, let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the, he will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you. And you will feel better. Okay, let's just pause really quickly and identify a couple of interesting things in the text. First of all, the term liar refers to an instrument, not the opposite of truth. Okay, that's an easy one. Now the hard one, uh, what in the world are we talking about? An evil spirit from God. Um, I can say confidently, I don't know. No, I, I really am confused by this text, uh, by the by the story, and exactly what's happening here. Uh, we do know uh, that uh, there is a consequence in Saul's life for having turned his back on God, uh, and, and this is how uh, that consequence is described in this context. I've seen it described uh, in a number of different ways, uh, whether this is God tormenting him directly, or God withdrawing his um, his favor from him and the enemy tormenting him. Uh, I, I've heard it described in both ways. I can't tell you exactly, but what we do know in the text is that Saul, having turned his back on 
God, uh, there is consequence and there is trouble in the waters. Uh, there, there's troubles in Saul's life as the text continues. Verse 17. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit of God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So the first thing I want to identify in the in the story in the text today, uh, David is now working in Saul's service, right? He's working under the king. And we might think this a really ironic and interesting twist. Last week, God has um, anointed through Samuel. Uh, David has been anointed. He will be the new king. And immediately as the story develops, uh, Saul finds himself in need of someone who can play an instrument. Now, guaranteed, there are court musicians. There are musicians throughout the palace and the kingdom already. And in the most unlikely of decisions, again, they say, well, there's this, there's this shepherd guy out in a remote region. He's out with the sheep right now, in fact, but he, he plays. In the most unlikely of circumstance, we could say coincidence, uh, David will now be in the palace serving the current king, Saul. But I don't think coincidence is the right word for it. I think what we're looking at here is a very important truth, both in the story of David and in our lives today, that God is orchestrating the things he intends. That God is at work in this very scenario and situation. Uh, David, the most unlikely of candidates will be chosen to come and to serve Saul, the existing king, before he will become king himself. So, uh, as, as the story continues, uh, it, we're, we're going to skip forward just a little bit um, into chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. But David is in waiting now. He's in this place of limbo, and at this point, it's going quite well. Right, Saul really likes him, he's giving him more responsibilities, and things are going great for David. But nonetheless, he's in a season of limbo that will last for many years in his life. And waiting, as we mentioned earlier, is not always easy. Like, can we get on with the plan at some point? God is probably what he's thinking. You see, it's not going to stay easy for long in David's life, and he's going to find himself uh, in dire circumstances in the season of waiting. And so the question we begin to ask ourselves is, what does it look like to wait upon the Lord? Uh, first, we have this understanding that God is at work, even when we don't see all the details of his plan. Uh, but we, we still ask, what posture do I take? How do I engage while waiting on the Lord? Uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 5, our story continues. 
Um, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel and to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now Saul was very angry. This, refer, this refrain displeased him greatly. Uh, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, uh, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. The story continues, and um, Saul, as a reward for David's victories and campaigns, uh, gives his daughter Michael in marriage to David. Um, in verse 28, Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David. Saul became more, still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So we see uh, in this section of the story um, a, a second character start to come to life. Uh, that is the character of Saul. And we see in Saul's character uh, this, um, this intertwining of jealousy, fear, and greed. Okay, uh, and, and we're going to look for a few moments at, at what are we seeing in the character of these people. We identified a moment ago, God who is working to orchestrate his plans. That's important. God is always the main character in these stories we read, even though we say there about David, God is the main character, and God is working to accomplish his plans in this story. But secondly, we see Saul. Uh, consumed by jealousy, fear, and greed. Uh, Einstein once said, there are three great forces in the world, uh, stupidity, fear, and greed. All right, And uh, I, I don't think he was speaking directly about the story of Saul, but instead about a principle that plays out time and time again as regimes, as people take hold of power and fear and greed drive the stupidity that plays out. Uh, this is the story of Saul. Uh, there's this old saying on Wall Street, uh, financial markets are driven by two powerful emotions, greed and fear. I simply mention these quotes because these are very real things, I think, in everyday life. Uh, many people have identified that greed and fear and jealousy are powerful and destructive forces often in the world around us. So in Saul, he, he experiences this jealousy. 
Um, he's jealous of David's success and the fact that David is respected by all of the people in the nation. And, and many of us probably know what jealousy feels like. You know, it, it kind of creeps up on us. It's not something that we often feel immediately or identify immediately as a problem in our life, and yet jealousy creeps up and it grows in our lives. Um, you've seen it if you've had kids and they're at a play date and the kids are playing in a room. Uh, a kid picks up the toy and all of a sudden in that moment, every other kid in the room wants to play with that very toy, right? This is, this is, uh, jealousy in its simplest and purest, uh, earliest form. And yet, do we ever really grow up from that? I don't think we do. We look on our, our social media feeds. We see the car that our neighbor is driving or the house that they live in. We see these things and these people and we immediately find ourselves wanting those very things. I don't think we grow up from those childhood ways of jealousy. It creeps up on us in our conversations and the things we see on social media and our relationships with friends and family. Jealousy is a very real temptation. Galatians 5 describes uh, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And let me just tell you, uh, jealousy is not one of them. The Holy Spirit does not bless us with jealousy. No, the Holy Spirit is producing in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And in fact, if you go to Galatians 5 and read uh, the precursor to the section there on the gifts of the Spirit, uh, you'll see jealousy listed as one of those incredibly destructive things in life. But the Spirit comes to bring not jealousy, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and things like this. Paul's, or Saul is experiencing jealousy. Uh, he's experiencing fear. Uh, he, he fears the loss of his favor, both in the eyes of God and his people. Uh, he is fearful for his life as he has uh, tried to take David's life a number of times uh, already and will continue to do so increasingly. Uh, he fears the success of other people. Um, and I think that's kind of natural to humanity. Uh, when someone else looks greater, I look less. And so we find ourselves sometimes comparing ourselves to the people around us in similar positions in our workplace or in parallel lines of work, saying their success makes me look a little bit less. And this is fear speaking in destructive ways in our lives. And Saul finds himself consumed by greed. He finds himself uh, clinging desperately to his power and position. Greed begins to drive his decisions and his actions. And finally, we have this character, the character of David. And uh, I think we have a lot to learn from. I think the story of David can shape us in remarkable ways today as we explore it. You see, David, in a tumultuous time in life, in both a season of waiting and a season of incredible uh, persecution, his life is on the line, quite literally, uh, in an incredibly challenging season, the character of J David is remarkable. He's able to hold himself in an upright way, uh, in the face of injustice. Uh, he's able to believe in God's promise, even when there's very little evidence in this moment. Uh, 
right? When the king is throwing spears at him, he's able still to believe in the promises of God. Now, David had a choice how to respond to uh, the situation that he was in. And he chose uh, the right and the excellent way. Uh, he excelled at his responsibilities, even when he's being mistreated in the roles that he's play that that he's playing. He didn't allow bitterness or retaliation to take over in his life, but instead he continued to excel at the tasks that he was given. Do you ever find yourself in your workplace or in your life uh, feeling mistreated? feeling like things are unjust, feeling like things are not operating the way they should. We can't always control our circumstances, but we can control the ways that we respond. I have a friend here today who's going to share just really briefly here um, about her experience uh, in the workplace and the sometimes toxic nature of it. And so Tommy... um, Come tell us just briefly, um, how do you maintain your poise uh, when the workplace becomes toxic? Well, it's pretty tough sometimes. Um, initially, for me, it was about what I would lose if I didn't maintain my, my poise. But then as I started to my faith journey, it became about forgiveness because you can't, you can't blame them for what they don't know. Right, so you have to forgive them, and so that uh, and that enabled me to move on. That's good. That's good, Tommy. I've learned a ton from you uh, in our uh, journey together about the ways God uh, works, the ways God reshapes us, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, we can't always control our circumstances, but we always get to choose how we respond. If you get to talk uh, more with Tommy about just her experience in her workplace, uh, I'm, I'm sure she'd fill you in on uh, much more of the story. Uh, but she has chosen a better way. Uh, instead of allowing the bitterness and the negativity to overwhelm, uh, she chooses to do self-care. Uh, to focus on being healthy and productive in her place. And, and this, too, is a story of David, a man who, in the face of injustice, chooses to dig in his heels and do well at the things he is assigned. Engaged and waiting. Now, this is the subject today. David has found himself in a 15-year hold pattern. That's a really long time. Um, I was I was about eight years into uh, my youth ministry career when I started realizing that a, a change was in store. Eight years in, and God had done some remarkable things. We had been so blessed to um, see uh, students in the church, neighborhood, kids, and friends uh, engage and come to know more of Jesus. But eight years in, we knew that uh, change was on the horizon. And um, uh, Bill Hybels describes it sometimes as a holy discontent. Uh, the sense that God has placed in our life that something new is coming. And here was a challenge for us for the next four years. 
before beginning this journey for four more years, we would ask questions of, so God, what is next? Like, you've, you've impressed upon me this discontent, and I don't mean that in a purely negative way, but simply the sense that there is something more, that you are inviting us into something new. For four years, I would oscillate between uh, engagement where I was at, discouragement with where I was at, and finally, uh, pursuing, running after the things that I thought could be next. And so we considered many different career changes, and who knows what the next thing looks like. At one point, for about a year and a half, uh, I directed the Martin Luther King Center out in East Pasco, uh, and that's a collaboration between the city of Pasco and the YMCA uh, in an underserved community uh, that I grew to love. Remarkable experience, and I was so convinced as I began uh, that this is what God had in store, that this is what was next. And within a year and a half, it was very evident that it was not. I maintained my love for that community, uh, but just uh, organizational and uh, political things uh, made it impossible uh, to stay in that capacity. And yet I had been so convinced, God, this is what you had in store for us. Four years later, as we begin church planting, we get we got to look back and see how quite often I found myself on the wrong side of this waiting game, uh, experiencing discouragement, uh, not engaging as well as I should have in the moments I had, pursuing my own dreams instead of waiting on God's timing and his calling. And yet we get to look back and see how God was gracious, how God was equipping, how God was inviting us into something new and something beautiful. And here's a challenge in the waiting seasons in our life. Quite often, we don't see God's hands involved, at least in as a detailed a way as he actually is involved in the scenario. It's quite often in hindsight that we get to see those things. And I wonder if as we sit here today and consider the story of David uh, and consider how it kind of shapes our life and understanding of God, I wonder if you could think back on some big movements, some big developments in life, and see how God had been orchestrating something beautiful for a long time through the waiting, through the challenges, through the struggles, through the injustice, through the things that we have experienced. We trust that God is at work. We choose a posture of engagement over apathy or discouragement or any of the other responses we could have. God is at work, and we choose to engage in the wait. So um, what does this mean for us today? I mean, like, how does this text shape the ways that we think and live and process? How is God reshaping us as we explore the story of David today? Um, so as a church, uh, we've been in a three-year series of waiting on different things, and I think that's really interesting. Um, uh, right now, uh, last week, we had a committee meeting on our facility search, looking for you know uh, the building that we might purchase or that we might build. And for a long time, we've been waiting on God in this uh, respect, saying, you know, when, when will that? perfect opportunity be dropped in our lap? When will God, you know, ordain and make very clear, open the doors that we can see this is the next move? And it's been a slow process, and we've been okay with that. We've not chosen an idle posture while we wait on that next step. Uh, 
we know that God is orchestrating something beautiful. And so we as a people, as a church, we kind of know waiting, right? Uh, we have a remarkable opportunity here and have not had to hurry out, which is beautiful. It makes the waiting much easier, but we've chosen a posture of waiting. Uh, we as a people know kind of a slow, steady growth to this church in our journey. And by the way, I say that with pride, like excitement, uh, because in that, God has created this DNA of relational capacity and network and love, the things that I desire most deeply to see in a church and to be a part of. So we move slowly. We wait on God's timing, and he is doing remarkable things. We're working on, right now, deepening our relationships with community partnerships, believing that we leverage our time and our finances much further in our community when we work in partnership with other churches and organizations. And and so as we do that, we continue, like, we're not doing everything in this community we dream of doing, and yet we choose a posture of engagement while we continue to wait on all of these things to transpire. I don't know if those are great examples. I don't know how those strike you. They're the ones that come to mind, though, uh, because this is a reality. We're always waiting on something, right? There's always a next step. God is orchestrating things far bigger than we could accomplish in this moment, right? And if God is orchestrating big, big things, then we find ourselves asking this question that David asked, that David demonstrated for us, how will I engage in a season of waiting. So each of us today as individuals, how will we engage? Well, we wait. First of all, we remember that God is at work. Second, we maintain our posture of progress, of engagement. Uh, Whatever the season of waiting looks like in my life, I will choose to engage in the here and now because God has blessed me with this time, this place, this opportunity, while he orchestrates many other things for the future. And finally, we maintain our Christ-centered posture, even in seasons of difficulty, a posture that demonstrates love for the world, uh, that, that puts others' interests above our own. We maintain this posture of Jesus as we engage in seasons of waiting. Sarah read for us uh, from a number of psalms this morning, and she read, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips, even in seasons of waiting. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. So be strong and take heart and wait on the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time. We thank you for the story of David and the opportunity, Father, uh, to allow your text, your word, um, to transform our life, our worldview, our, our understandings. So, Father, as so often we find ourselves pushing towards the next goal, as so often we find ourselves pursuing the things that seem most expedient or needed in our lives, Father, will you teach us to wait on you? We trust, we believe that you are at work orchestrating beautiful things. And Father, will you help us to have a Christ-centered posture 
as we wait on your plan, as we engage in the things that are before us in the here and now. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll close with this benediction then. May we learn to wait on the Lord. May we choose not an idle posture, but engage while waiting. May his will be done and his kingdom come on earth. Have a blessed week.